if you remember from last week, our study in Hebrews 11. Hebrews is written to, written by an unknown author to a unknown Jewish community of disciples of Jesus. They are struggling in their faith. Uh, when they committed their life to Jesus, they began to suffer for their faith. And early on, they handled the suffering well. They endured it with joy because they knew what Jesus would give them was greater than what the world could take from them. But as time gone on, they began to be discouraged. They began to struggle uh, and to deal with how, gosh, is this ever going to end? And as a part of their discouragement and a part of their struggle, they began to think maybe we should just go back to Judaism. Life would be easier then. Uh, the Romans wouldn't persecute us because the Jews were fairly indoctrinated into the culture, except in the culture the Jews wouldn't persecute them because they would be back to what they were supposed to be. And maybe life would just be easier. Well, the author of Hebrews writes to them to encourage them really not to do that. He wants them to understand there are serious and eternal consequences if they abandon Jesus to go back to any form of Judaism that they had previously been a part of. He encourages them to persevere in their living faith for Jesus through two main themes seen throughout the book of Hebrews. The first is Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus is better than the Old Testament and anything that's found in the Old Testament. The other is the idea of having a living faith, to continue to live by faith. right? Not just any kind of faith, but to have a living faith in the living God. Now, again, if you were here last week, we defined a living faith. As a living faith, trust Jesus' character enough to act on Jesus' promises. Right? It's not enough for us just to say we trust Jesus' character. We have to live in a way that demonstrates our faith in Jesus' character. And we do this by making life decisions based upon His promises and expecting Jesus to keep His word. This is a living faith. Now, this, as I mentioned, this is the definition we'll use of faith all throughout this chapter, all throughout this study. Now, as you can imagine, these disciples probably had loads of questions about their journey, loads of questions about their life, and loads of questions about their suffering. And it probably, I would think, one of the questions they would have is, is what's the point? I mean, what, what really is the point of continuing? What good is faith, even a living faith, if everything around them keeps crashing down upon them? What is the what's the payoff if everything now is so hard because we live by faith in Jesus? What is the payoff at the end? Because, again, so far, their faith in Jesus had done nothing but make their lives hard. Right there, all of the suffering they were enduring was simply because they believed Jesus and they lived for Jesus. They had suffered public humiliation. They had had their earthly goods taken away from them. They, they struggled with a, a great struggle, the Bible says, of persecution and of suffering. Now, again, at one time they understood that what Jesus would give them was going to be better than what the world had taken away from them. But at some point, you begin to wonder... Is it really? What is, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but what's the payoff? If I'm trading comfort and social standing and stuff and ease of life 
for all of this hardship, all of this difficulty, all of these things that make my life bitter and miserable for Jesus, what do I get in the end that's going to make this worthwhile? I can see where they might ask that question. I can also see where we might ask that question in our lives. Now, we don't suffer for our faith in Jesus in the same way they suffered for their faith in Jesus yet. But I do think that day is coming when, as disciples of Jesus in America, we will suffer for our faith in Jesus, our faithfulness to Jesus, our devotion to Him. And I think this day is coming faster than we imagine. Now, let me just kind of... I know we always say that. I mean, every... I could listen to church pastors from a hundred years ago and they were saying the same thing. But we are seeing increased levels of opposition. I I saw something last night. A a fella is suing the United States Department of Education because the United States Department of Education offers grants and loans and things like that to students who go to Christian colleges. And that's the contention. That these Christian colleges, they're allowed to discriminate based upon their beliefs. Right? Their Bible-based beliefs that certain lifestyles are wrong, that you have to believe in Jesus and all of these kinds of things. And he wants all of that, all of that taken away. Right? And he is very likely to win. The culture is very set against Christianity. Very set against a, a Bible's view of morality. And of what is right and of what is wrong. So popular opinion is not with the Department of Education. Popular opinion is not with these colleges. So he could very well win. And then every Christian college in America will suddenly lose all of their Pell Grants, all of their scholarships, all of their freedoms to say we believe the Bible. Right? And, and what's coming for the colleges, make no mistake, is coming for the churches. I mean, there is there are things being promoted which would make it where a church must hire someone. If we had a youth pastor position open and someone applied for it, it wouldn't matter if they were Jesus followers or not. They could be atheists and we could not discriminate against them because of their faith. Because we are, we're, we're a public institution. This, this is coming. This is where the world is heading. And, and it's heading there faster than what we imagine it will be. But until that day actually arrives, we do see our faith mocked in pop culture. We are ridiculed for believing God's word is right. God's word is real. And anything contradictory to it is wrong. We are accused of being bigots and narrow-minded people, accused of being stupid people who are bound by an outdated morality and outdated beliefs who contribute almost nothing to society. Now, those are all of those things are things we could look at today on social media. Right. All of this is now. This isn't something far out that may come. This is now. So it's going to make life as a disciple of Jesus difficult. On top of this, being a disciple of Jesus does mean we live a certain way. And living the way 
Jesus has called us to live is not easy. It's not easy to turn the other cheek. It's not easy to do good to those who hate you. It's not easy to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's it's not easy to be more devoted to Jesus than we are to anything else to such an extent we lose jobs, we lose friends, we lose relationships because Jesus brings division in those areas. And this may cause us to wonder, as it may have caused these disciples to wonder, what's the reward for trusting Jesus' character enough to act on his promises and live the way he has called us to live? What's the reward for believing in Jesus and following Jesus? Well, the, the two texts we're going to look at tonight from Hebrews 11 answer that. If you'll stand, Hebrews 11 uh, page 926. I'm going to read the first six verses, but we're really only going to look at two verses tonight. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch when was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Title of the message tonight is the reward of faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, open our eyes tonight to understand your word. Open our hearts to receive it. Let us be a people, Father, who live with an active faith. We trust Jesus' character. We act on Jesus' promise. And we live in a way reflecting this. Father, let it be seen in our lives. We know Jesus. We love Jesus. We believe Jesus. Search us and try us. See if there's anything in our lives not as it ought to be. Where there is, let your Holy Spirit bring conviction. Let your Holy Spirit press upon us in those places till we repent and we renounce those things that are keeping us from being who you want us to be. Father, where we're weak, make us strong. Where we're discouraged, give us encouragement. Father, where we feel bound up, give us freedom. Where there is sin in our lives, oh God, bring grace and mercy to set us free from those things. Just do in us and through us and for us all you have promised to do in us and through us and for us. And we'll give you the praise for you alone deserve it. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now verse 2, by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good reward. A, a good report. The reward for trusting Jesus' character enough to act on Jesus' promises is we receive God's approval. And this is our key truth for tonight. We only receive the approval of God through a living faith. Now, this may seem to us to be a, a pretty basic idea. But it would have been big time important to the original readers. 
The author of Hebrews wants them to understand the idea of a living faith wasn't anything new. Faith was always the means by which the people of God received the approval of God. Always from start to finish. Now, in thinking about the idea of the people of God receiving approval from God based upon our living faith in God. I began to think of two what I would call dangers, two very Real dangers for our soul in understanding this point or misunderstanding this point. Right? These are dangers we see from God's word and they are dangers ultimately for our souls. Right? The first danger is works without faith. Right? Now, the, the elders obtained a good report through faith. Now, the elders he's speaking of are, are the heroes of Judaism or the people in this book yeah, that we see listed in Hebrews chapter 11. The point the author uh, is making by listing these people is saying all of your heroes were people of faith. But all of these people you already know, all of these people you already look to, all of these people you already understand are heroes of Judaism, what they really are, what they really were. Are people who lived by a living faith. Their living faith in God was always the basis of their approval from God. Every person who has ever been approved by God was approved by God because of their living faith in God. Now, this would have been extremely significant to the original readers because of the tremendous amount of rituals and offerings uh, and other things required by the Old Testament law. Now, if you have read your Old Testament, you know the Old Testament was detailed. I mean, they had to wear certain things. They had to, to they could only walk so many miles on certain days. They had to make a certain number of sacrifices. They had to tithe at certain times. They could offer certain things at certain times. I mean, and it was all very, very detailed. And what could happen is the people who were involved in that began to to trust not so much in God, but in the rituals and in their performance of the rituals. And this was very much something that happened in the Old Testament. We find often in the Old Testament, in the prophets specifically, Where people were worshiping God. They were doing all of the religious activities Judaism demanded. And yet God did not accept them. God did not approve of them. We find examples of this in Malachi, Amos, Isaiah, and really all of the prophets. Keep in mind it was rare for Israel to completely abandon God. When Israel was in their states of rebellion, typically what they did was they abandoned God in one area, but were faithful in another. So they would worship Baal on Friday, and then they would worship Yahweh on Saturday. Or they would worship Yahweh on Saturday and be adulterers on Monday. Right? I mean, they, there was just areas of compromise, but throughout their time, whether they were worshiping other gods, or whether they were living in wicked immorality... When Saturday came, they went to the temple or they went to the synagogues. 
When it was time for the Passover, they made the offerings. When it was time to tithe, they made the tithes. They did all of the things they were supposed to do. But they did them not in faith. They did them because they were supposed to do them. They did them despite the other way they were living outside of that moment, outside of that day. And God did not approve of them or their rituals or their religious activities because they lacked a living faith. Now, don't miss the significance of this. They went through all of the motions of religion, of God's religion, not just Baal religion, but of God's religion. And yet God did not receive them because they did not have a living faith. But look at Hebrews 10 and 4, what the Bible says. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. You know, the reality is the sacrifices they made never took away their sin. What took away their sin or what rolled it back wasn't the literal killing of the animal. It was their faith in God. When they obeyed and made the sacrifice because they believed in God, then their sins were rolled back. Then that happened. But if they just said, well, it's Passover time and we're supposed to go on the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice, I guess we better take something and go. It did nothing for them physically or spiritually. It did not do anything. It was an empty religious ritual. And being devoid of faith, it was useless. In the eyes of God. In fact, God goes so far in the book of Amos to say he hates it. I hate. I despise your feast days. Feast days. That was a part of of Jewish religion. And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Right. And the smell means that was the the sacrifices. If you remember, like my Bible reading has now moved me into Leviticus. And as they make sacrifices and they're burned, it's a sweet smelling savor. Rising up to God. Well, here God says it's not. They're making, they're having the feast. Nope, God hates it. God is not, there's no sweet savor rising from their sacrifices. They, they offer the burnt offerings and the meat offerings, but notice, He will not accept them. Neither will He regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Take them away. Take away the noise of your songs. I will not hear the melody of your, your stringed instruments. I mean, you, you get the picture. God hates their worship. Why? Because when you read the book of Amos, you find they weren't living for God. Yes, they had feast days to Yahweh, but they also had feast days to Baal. Yes, they, they made the sacrifices to Yahweh, but they also committed adultery. And were fornicators. Yes, they sang the songs of Zion. But they also sang the songs of oppression. As they oppressed their own people. And to them, God says, I hate your worship. I despise it. I would rather you stop doing it. And he did not accept them. Because he did not, because they did not do it through their faith in God. He did not approve of them. He did not give them his approval. They did not obtain a good report. Despite their religious activity. Because it was not mixed with faith. We see this even in the New Testament. Think about in the Gospels. Who was Jesus the hardest on? Was it the prostitutes? 
and the tax collectors and the other notorious sinners? Was it scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders? Well, it was the religious leaders. Now, keep in mind, when it comes to this sort of stuff, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders were as religiously righteous as a person could be. They tithed down to the the stuff they raised in their personal gardens. They fasted twice in a week. They they wore all of the right robes. They, They put a strainer over the drink so that when they strained it, they would be sure not to get any sort of a fly or anything like that. I mean, they they took the law and they did it exactly the way it was told. The washings, sacrifices, the rules laid out by the law they followed. And yet here's how Jesus describes them. Hypocrites, whitewashed sepulchers, beautiful on the outside Dead and unclean on the inside. You look righteous to the world, but you're really hypocritical and filled with iniquity. Despite all of their religious activity, they they failed to receive God's approval. And their failure to receive God's approval wasn't because they didn't do things. They did things. They did all the things. Their failure to receive God's approval was because they didn't have faith in God. Rather, their faith over time seemed to have become in them. And and maybe not even in them as much as in their adherence to the law. I made the sacrifices. I give the tithe. I do these things. Therefore, I'm I'm right. Right. They their faith had had gone from being in the God who gave the commands into their ability to keep the commands. And they had become self-righteous and they were not truly righteous. And by trusting in the religious activities, trusting in their ability to keep the religious activities. They had stopped trusting in God and so they failed to receive God's approval. If we're not careful, we could fall into the same sort of a trap. We could do all the right things, but because we trust in our ability to do the right things, because we trust in the fact we're doing the right things, we begin to trust in us and our actions rather than in the God who has called us to do these actions. Jesus warns us about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about people who will say on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The the problem was they knew his name. They had done all these actions. They weren't they never received his approval because they did not have faith. I think it mattered. We have to remember why we do what we do matters. Why are we out on a Wednesday night? Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? Why do we share the gospel? Why do we give? Why do we do what we do? If it's to be righteous, then the faith is in the act and not in God. If it's because I have faith in God, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. To receive God's approval isn't just to do certain actions. It's not just to, to go to church. Just to go to church because I love God. I believe in God. It's not just to read our Bible, but it's to read our Bible because I, I believe in God. 
It's not just to to give. It's to give because I, I believe all that we do has to be motivated by our faith. Religious activities, even right religious activities, not motivated by faith in Jesus, will not receive God's approval. Works without faith is a danger to our souls. Second danger to our souls is faith without works. Verse 6, we see faith is more than affirming certain facts to be true. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that is rewarded of them that diligently seek him. Once again, we're reminded, cannot please God apart from faith. So everything rises and falls upon our faith. But here we see faith isn't merely affirming certain facts to be true. It's not just acknowledging there is a God out there somewhere. Right? For he that, that comes to God must believe that he is. So there's that part. We must believe in God. But he is also a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Right? Faith not only believes there is a God, but faith believes this God and diligently seeks this God. Right? Faith not only acknowledges certain facts to be true, faith lives in light of those facts. Faith makes life decisions based upon those facts being true. I have a deep-seated fear. Many... In our day, who profess faith in Jesus, limit faith to merely accepting or affirming certain facts to be true. To accept faith in this way or think of faith in this way is to say something like, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Therefore, I believe Jesus. Therefore, I have faith in Jesus. And while that sounds right. That can leave us unchanged. That can leave us making an affirmation that is true, but being unchanged by the same affirmation. And the more I study God's word, the less convinced I am this is right. In fact, I am at this point in my life completely convinced it is completely wrong. A genuine biblical faith, a living faith, changes the way we live. I mean, look at the definition of faith again in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our faith gives evidence of the unseen promises of God as we act on them. A living faith not only affirms the unseen promises of God are real... A living faith acts as though those promises are real. Actively lives as if they are true. Lives as if they are true. Not merely says they are true. This is an important distinction. When I live as though the unseen promises are true, I live differently than I would live otherwise. As an example, if I were to say, I have a box behind the pulpit 
which has a million dollars in cash in it, and I will give that cash to everyone who comes up to get some of it. So if only one, you get it all. If everyone, you get part of it. Your response to that claim would reveal whether or not you believed me, wouldn't it? I mean, you could say, yes, I believe you, and then stay there. But would that really show you believe there was a million dollars up there you could have or have part of by staying still? It wouldn't, would it? It would show you doubt my character, right? You doubt my ability. You doubt I have a million dollars. Or you doubt my character that even if I had it, I would give it. But if I said there's a million dollars up here behind the pulpit and whoever wants some of it can just get up and come get it now. If you jumped up and came and got it, it would show you believed me. Yes, you have the ability to give a million dollars. Yes, you have such a character you would give a million dollars. It's very similar. The promises of Jesus. Our response to the promises of Jesus gives evidence of whether or not we truly believe Jesus. Several years ago, I read a blog by a pastor who described what he called practical atheism. And according to him, a practical atheist is one who mentally and verbally affirms faith in Jesus, but whose life remains unchanged by this faith. He went on later to write a book, and I think he called it a Christian atheist because they affirmed faith, but it had no impact upon their lives. Here are some of the character traits he gave of a practical atheist. A practical atheist lives, willfully lives a sinful life, right? As though God has not said anything about holiness. A practical atheist lives in disobedience to God's word as if there are no consequences for rejecting God and what he has said in his word. A practical atheist does not give. Right? As if God cannot provide for their physical and financial needs. A practical atheist spends no time in God's word. As though God's word were not relevant to their lives today. A practical atheist has an anemic prayer life. As if God was not able to do things in our modern world. A practical atheist lives a comfortable Self-focused life as though Jesus has not called us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses to follow him. A practical atheist lives a safe life as though Jesus did not expect us to trust him, take risks and see what he might do. For us to affirm we believe the gospel and yet to live no different than those who do not believe the gospel is practical atheism. Believing the gospel changes us. When we believe the gospel, it changes our thinking. When we believe the gospel, it changes our values. When we believe the gospel, it changes our priorities. When we believe the gospel, it changes our actions. When we believe the gospel, it changes our reactions. When we believe the gospel, it changes our attitudes. When we believe the gospel, it changes our speech. When we believe the gospel, it changes our time management. 
When we believe the gospel, it changes our financial stewardship. And when we believe the gospel, it changes our morals. Believing the gospel changes everything. How could it not? When we say we believe the gospel, think about what we're saying. That Sunday we looked at Revelation 4 and a little bit at Isaiah 6. When we say we believe the gospel, we're saying that God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Cast off his glory, limited himself to being in one place at one time and limited himself in certain other ways to live among us as one of us to redeem us. And in the 33 or so years he lived among us, he was tempted as we are yet without sin. Taught great and wonderful things. Did wonderful and amazing miracles. Lived a sinless life. We could not possibly have lived. He was rejected, beaten, spit upon by those he created. Who were created for his pleasure, Revelation 4 says. And for his honor and for those he came to save. He was nailed to a cross where all the fury The righteous wrath of God against sin was poured out upon him on our behalf. After drinking the full cup of God's wrath against all of our sin, he willingly gave up his life and died. He was buried where he lay dead for three days. And after three days, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and the grave. For the next 40 or so days, He spent it ensuring his disciples knew for sure he was risen. It wasn't a vision. He wasn't a ghost. He had bodily risen from the grave. And after 40 days of proving he was actually alive, he ascended into heaven where he's at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. He then sent His Spirit upon the earth who called us to salvation, convicted us of our sin, revealed Jesus to us and showed us our need. And when we repented and when we believed, He regenerated us and we were born again and made into something entirely different. Our sins were taken away. Our condemnation was taken away. We were made Co-heirs with Christ, adopted children of God. One third of the Godhead lives within us and has gifted us to serve Him and advance His kingdom and bring Him glory. How could that not change us? How could I truly say, I believe all of that, but I live no different than the unbelieving atheist down the street? I can't. If I believe the gospel and am no different than the average unbeliever around me, there is no real way I can say truly a believer in the gospel. It's just not possible to believe something like the gospel and remain the same. Believing that story would necessity, of necessity, bring radical changes to every aspect of our lives. Faith without works. There's no real faith 
at all. And this is a danger to our souls. As we think back to our key truth, we only receive the approval of God through a living faith. We have to realize approval here means more than a pat on the back and being told way to go. Approval is synonymous with salvation. Let me show you this. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Verse 14 through 30. Page 756, I think, I hope. I'll read the parable and we'll talk about it. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods and said unto them, and unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that received the five talents went and traded them with the same and made other five talents. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoned with him. So that he received the five came and brought the other five, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I've gained besides them five talents more. And his Lord said unto him, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. And his Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou to the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strewed. And I was afraid and I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, here is here. Lo, there is thou hast given me. And his Lord answered and said unto him, thou wicked and slothful servant. Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, gather where I strewed not. Thou ought to us therefore put my money into the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Therefore take the talent from him, give it to him which had ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, to he that hath an abundance, but but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast the unprofitable servant out of darkness, will it be weeping and gnashing teeth. Now we don't have time to get deep into this. Three servants are called, three servants are given talents, three servants are set up for success. Every man was given according to his ability. The master gave them this in order to be stewards and to use it for his glory and to accomplish his purposes. Two of the servants took the money the master gave them and they used it for the way he would want. And when the master came back, they were able to give an increase. And the master said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. The first who received the master's approval. But then the third servant comes. The third servant gets a slightly diff- gives a slightly different report. He had not taken the master's money and used it to do the master's will. Rather, out of what he calls fear of the master, he buried it in the ground, did nothing with it. Now, there is something 
important to see here in the exact wording of the, of the exchange between them. In essence, what the, the lazy servant says is, he says, I, I knew thee, right? I, I believed you and I believed you a certain way. And so here's what I really what I didn't do. Verse 26 and 27, the master uses his words and says, well, if you believe this about me, then you should have done this, right? I, I believed you. And because I believed you, I, I did this or I didn't do anything to which the master says, if you really believe that, you should have done something with what I gave you. You see, this judgment on the wicked servant is based upon faith or really the lack thereof. It's not that he hid the talent so much. It's that his lack of faith is the issue. His faithless inaction causes him to be called wicked, slothful or lazy, unprofitable. And he's cast into outer darkness where there is a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. The first two receive their master's approval. The third does not. Those who receive it are called to enter into the joy of the Lord. The one who does not is cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If this isn't meant to be an illustration of salvation and of some going to heaven and of others going to hell, then I don't suppose I understand the parable at all. What else could it mean? Where else does someone who's faithful go to enter into the joy of the Lord? Where else do the unprofitable, wicked, and lazy go where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Both of those are, it's heaven and hell. They have received approval. They did not receive approval. And all of it is based upon their faith. Go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 11. Again, so from what we see, receiving God's approval It must be synonymous with salvation. The men and the women we see in this chapter, we can expect to see in heaven. Now, they're not the only people from the Old Testament we can expect to see in heaven, but we can certainly expect them to be here because they all received a good report. They all pleased God. They all received the approval of God through their living faith. Salvation is and has always been an issue of faith. No one has ever been saved and no one ever will be saved by their own merits. And this is true no matter what those merits are, whether those merits are good morals, whether those merits are kindness, whether those merits are religious activity. There are no merits a person can do to receive God's approval. And be told, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That reception, that approval is saved by those who live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is always by faith. But at the same time, faith in Jesus changes us and compels us to live in an entirely different way. In this different way, it includes living by faith 
in Jesus. A, a faith that would say acknowledge facts about Jesus to be true, but live as though they weren't. It is not a living faith. That is not the faith that receives God's approval. A living faith radically changes our lives. And it compels us to make life decisions based upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has said in his word. Those who live by a living faith can expect at the end of their lives to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And those who live like unbelievers but profess faith in Jesus can expect to hear you wicked and lazy servant. A faith which does not change us simply does not save us. Let's pray. Father, we love you today.